0: A choo-choo train? No, it's five pounds of veal. And boys and girls at all. Daddy, I have Santa for a choo-choo. Well then go out and get a job and buy a choo-choo. Ah, oh, Earl, he's only four years old. All day long I listen to people give excuses why they can't work. My back hurts, my legs ache. I'm only four. Well, that's a fine how-do-you-do on Christmas Day. Exactly. Best thing's thing to be getting gifts. Oh, yeah, it's better to give gifts than get receipts. <laughs> oh, my, <God. laughs> my dad, when I was about four or five years old, he walks up to me before Christmas one day, and he says, Ellen, what would you like for Christmas? I said, gosh, Dad, I'd like a little dolly. Christmas Day, he wheels in this tremendous heavy metal thing. No, Dad, that's not mine. You ever try to dress one of those things? They're impossible. Just... We had fire drills around the house so that in case of a fire, we each had a special duty. Like my father had to grab the pets. My mother grabbed the jewelry. My brother ran out to get help. All right. Time, me to me go, to time to go. Time to go. Thing. Time to go. It's time for Gray Matters. Jim Dwyer is here. I so uh, I'm, I'm going to cut short the the playlist because I'm already a minute over. But if you go to WCBN FM. Pardon me. If you go to wcbn. dot
1: you can click on playlist and see what we've been inflicting on your ears. So uh, uh, tune in next year for more wacky Christmas music, and I'll talk to you later.
0: My dad was a radio technician during the war, so uh, I started building crystal sets, and uh,
1: when I was a kid, and uh, I was so excited, it almost sounded like, for me, if you build your own radio and then you turn it on, it's like you've also produced the music. Uh, you, you make a connection with it that you don't make when you go to the store and buy a radio. Uh, so I felt like all the songs that came out of radio, I had a, a lot to do with them. And some of them stick in your head for a long time. WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, building radio you can make a connection with. Hello, good evening, and welcome to Gray Matters. My name is Jim Dwyer, and I'll be doing the solo version again this week as Dick Whaley uh, takes care of uh, business. And, of course, uh, Christmas is in the air, and uh, you don't need to... uh, Watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special uh, every year, which uh, now, of course, you can watch whenever you want on YouTube to remind you that Christmas is a feeling inside that's a good thing. And uh, the silly music and the fun um, are just people uh, in need of uh, the brightness at the dark time of the year. So whatever your feelings are about commercialism or whatever, try to enjoy the good feeling of Christmas in some small way, whatever way you can, even if it's eating too much cookies, although that's probably not a very good way to go. Um, let's see. Last week, I did a sort of a profile of three recent books about the city of Detroit, and those were Detroit City is the Place to Be by Mark Benelli, uh, John Gallagher's Reimagining Detroit, and edited by the family Lynn, Belle Isle to Eight Mile, An Insider's Guide to Detroit. And I originally planned on going back to one chapter from the Reimagining Detroit, but I'm going to save that for another time. I've sort of done those books. I do strongly recommend them. If you are last minute scrambling for gift ideas, books, of course, are always a great way to go. And it's so exciting that we have a small independent bookstore in downtown Ann Arbor again. Um, what is it, Washington and 5th there, Uh, Literati. So uh, good to see uh, the ever-changing face of downtown Ann Arbor. I uh, won't comment much on that, but uh, the absence of bookstores, we used to be just uh, flourishing in bookstores here in downtown Ann Arbor, and that is no longer the case. And it's a little sad for those of us who uh, remember the days when you could... uh, enjoy several high-quality bookstores downtown. But uh, be that as it may, reading is, of course, one of the great uh, human art forms as well as uh, leisure activities. And uh, there are any thousand uh, possibilities for books. Uh, But I'm going to feature another selection here that is of recent publication and is, in fact... Copyright 2012, but is now available in a uh, cheaper paperback edition. And that is Martin Lee's Smoke Signals, a social history of marijuana, medical, recreational, and scientific. And of course, Martin Lee uh, did some work here in Ann Arbor, uh, has been on this uh, program before, in fact, uh, way back in the day, uh, when his Acid Dreams book, which he co authored with Bruce. Schlain, uh, was published in the late 80s, a sort of a history of the CIA, LSD, and the 1960s. Excellent cultural history, excellent political history, uh, very well written and masterful uh, revelation uh, of uh, some just intriguing facts. Uh, very good stuff uh, that Martin Lee produces. And this book, of course, comes at a time where, here in Michigan voters have approved uh, fairly uh, substantially uh, medical marijuana provisions. We've seen since that time a couple of states out west uh, basically completely legalize uh, the plant. Uh, So this is sort of a breakthrough in culture. Uh, Some aspects of the 60s were so Shocking and startling and overwhelming that there was, began to be a pushback against the progressivism of the 1960s. And we saw that during the first uh, Bush era, the H.W. Bush era, when, of course, then-President George H.W. Bush came to speak at uh, commencement here in Ann Arbor, a city well-known for its uh, political liberalism, uh, even radicalism, Uh, Of course, the John Sinclair story involves both politics and marijuana, and that is centered in Ann Arbor as well. So when President uh, H.W. Bush, uh, George H.W., came and talked about the disease of political correctness, uh, it was no casual gesture to have done so in Ann Arbor. Um, But we've seen since that time... uh, some amazing cultural breakthroughs that harken back to some of the, uh, greater hopes and aspirations for the, uh, youth movement, the student protest movement of the 1960s. And, uh, I think this would even include the increasingly widespread acceptance of, uh, gay marriage. Um, people's attitudes have changed, uh, by and large, uh, for the positive and, uh, tolerance has, uh, Become just a, well, you know, who cares? None of my business sort of a thing. And that uh, seems to have sort of happened with uh, marijuana and its bizarre place in the legal history of the United States of America. Uh, So this book um, comes at a very interesting time, and I'm going to read you a few excerpts from it here today. I'll probably uh, end the show with a song as well, not that I'm going to sing it myself. Although uh, I, I could probably do that if uh, need be. Uh, but I'll spare my voice a little bit of, uh, and your ears from hearing my voice for the entirety of a half hour just reading. But uh, I do want to share this with you because I think this book deserves your attention and is worthy of uh, a, a full read. I'll give you a few brief highlights here. And here's the prologue. The tall, mustached Texan on horseback looks like the quintessential cowboy with his Stetson hat, red bandana, dusty boots, and jingly spurs. His sunburned arms and leathery face show the wear and tear of a rugged outdoorsman. But Howard Woolridge isn't your typical cowboy. He's a retired police detective who's riding across the country to promote a provocative message, legalize marijuana and other drugs. Woolridge, then 54 and his trusty, one-eyed mare Misty, began their journey in Los Angeles in March 2005, and it would end seven months and 3,300 miles later in New York City. With a bedroll and a bag of carrots tied behind the saddle, they clippity-clopped from coast to coast, attracting attention and generating press coverage as they passed through cities and towns. Along the way, they had to contend with rattlesnakes in Arizona and New Mexico, the blistering summer heat of the Great Plains, With the exception of a few death threats, the folks they encountered were usually friendly, and many offered the veteran lawman a meal and a place to stay overnight. The horse is a wonderful vehicle because people relate to the cowboy cop image, Woolridge explained. Then we start talking politics. Another surefire attention grabber was the T-shirt he often wore, with the slogan, Cops say legalize drugs, ask me why. During his transcontinental trek, Woolridge lectured on criminal justice issues at several colleges and universities. He spoke in a disarmingly folksy, yes ma'am, manner as he challenged students and other citizens to rethink their ideas about marijuana prohibition and the war on drugs. Woolridge discussed his 18 years as a police officer in Michigan and how he never once received a call for help from a battered housewife or anyone else because of marijuana. Yet, Lansing area cops spent countless hours searching cars and frisking teenagers in order to find some weed when the police could have been addressing far more serious matters. Marijuana prohibition is a horrible waste of good police time, says Woolridge. Every hour spent looking for pot reduces public safety. Based on his experience as a peace officer, he concluded that, quote, marijuana is a much safer drug than alcohol for both the user and those around them. Alcohol releases reckless, aggressive, or violent feelings by its use. Marijuana use generally uh, generates the opposite effects in the vast majority of people. Officer Woolridge decided to protect and serve the public by focusing on booze-impaired motorists. His efforts earned him the nickname Highway Howie and kudos from Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Woolridge did not condone or advocate drug use of any kind, but he had enough horse sense to recognize that by banning marijuana, the US government essentially drives many people to drink. He felt that a substance should be judged by its actual harm it poses uh, by the actual harm it poses to the community. From a law enforcement standpoint, Woolridge asserted, the use of marijuana is not a societal problem. America needs to end pot prohibition. Convinced that the laws against marijuana were a lot wackier than the weed, Woolridge and several ex-cops formed a group called Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, or LEAP, in 2002. Before long, LEAP would grow into a 40,000-member international organization composed of former prosecutors, undercover narcotic agents, judges, prison wardens, constables, and other disillusioned government functionaries who, after years of toiling in the trenches of a conflict with no conceivable end, had come to view the war on drugs as a colossal failure that fostered crime, police corruption, and social discord racial injustice, and ironically, drug abuse itself, while squandering billions of tax dollars, clogging courtrooms and prisons, weakening constitutional safeguards, and impeding medical advances. Leap condemned the war on drugs as America's longest-running bipartisan folly. Woolridge called it, quote, the most dysfunctional, immoral domestic policy since slavery and Jim Crow, close quote. When law enforcement veterans defect from prohibitionist orthodoxy, their arguments tend to be particularly potent. But Woolridge understood that Leap's views were very controversial. He knew that a long journey lay ahead, literally and figuratively, as he sought, one step at a time, to persuade Americans who had been exposed to years of government propaganda about the evils of marijuana. Many people reject the notion of legalizing drugs on moral and ideological grounds. They see marijuana first and foremost as a dangerous recreational drug, a harbinger of social decay. They believe the oft-repeated claim that smoking grass is a gateway to harder drugs. The devil's weed has long been a favorite target of U.S. officials who misstate or exaggerate the physical and psychological effects of cannabis, the preferred name for marijuana in medical and scientific circles. Although cannabis has a rich history as a medicine in many countries around the world, including the United States, federal drug warriors erected a labyrinth of legal and institutional obstacles to inhibit research and prevent the therapeutic uses of the herb. They assembled a network of more than 50 government agencies and waged a relentless campaign against the marijuana scourge, a crusade that entailed sophisticated aerial surveillance, paramilitary raids, border patrols, censors, eradication sweeps, the spraying of herbicides, national TV ads, anti-drug classes in schools, and mandatory minimum prison terms for marijuana offenders, including an inordinate number of black and Latino youth. In 2005, the year that Woolridge and Misty hoofed across the states, more than 750,000 Americans were arrested on marijuana-related charges, the vast majority for simple possession. And the tally would continue to grow, irrespective of who was president or which political party was in power. Despite billions of dollars allocated annually to curb cannabis consumption, half of all American adults smoke the funny stuff at some point in their lives. An estimated 15 million U.S. citizens use marijuana regularly. Marijuana is by far the most popular illicit substance in the United States, with 10,000 tons consumed yearly by Americans in their college dorms, suburban homes, housing projects, and gated mansions. Pot smoking cuts across racial, class, and gender lines. It has become such a prevalent mainstream practice that cannabis users are apt to forget they are committing a criminal act every time they spark a joint. The history of marijuana in America has long been a history of competing narratives dueling interpretations. As Harvard professor Lester Grinspoon, M.D., observed in his 1971 book, Marijuana Reconsidered, Some felt that the road to Hades is lined with marijuana plants, while others felt that the pathway to Utopia was shaded by freely growing cannabis sativa. And so it continues. At the center of this dispute is a hardy, adaptable botanical that feasts on sunlight and grows like a weed in almost any environment. Marijuana plants are annuals that vary in height from 3 to 15 feet with delicate serrated leaves spread like the fingers of an open hand. Ridged down the middle and diagonally veined, cannabis leaves are covered, as is the entire plant, with tiny sticky hairs. The gooey resin on the leaves and matted flower tops contains dozens of unique oily compounds, some of which, when ingested, trigger neurochemical changes in the brain. The hotter and sunnier the climate, the more psychoactive resin the plant produces during a three- to five-month outdoor growing season. Known for its euphoria-inducing properties, hashish, or keef, is the concentrate made from the resin of female marijuana. Ancient peoples during the Neolithic period found uses for virtually every part of the plant, which has been cultivated by humans since the dawn of agriculture more than 10,000 years ago. The stems and stalks provided fiber for cordage and cloth. The seeds, a key source of essential fatty acids and protein, were eaten as food. And the roots, leaves, and flowers were utilized in medicinal and ritual preparations. A plant native to Central Asia, cannabis figured prominently in the shamanistic traditions of many cultures. Handed down from prehistoric times, knowledge of the therapeutic qualities of the herb and the utility of its tough fiber slowly spread throughout the world, starting from the Kush, The herbs presumed ancestral homeland in the Himalayan foothills. The plants dispersal across Eurasia into northern Europe followed the extensive migratory movements of the Scythians, aggressive charioteers in the second millennium B.C., a famous passage in Herodotus's Histories, written circa 440 B.C.E., uh, refers to the Scythians as howling with pleasure in their hemp vapor baths. Details gleaned from various academic disciplines, archaeology, history, anthropology, geography, botany, linguistics, and comparative mythology, indicate that marijuana's historical diffusion proceeded along two divergent paths, reflecting its dual role as a fiber crop and a psychoactive flower. One path moved westward from China into northern Europe, where cooler climbs favored rope over dope, while the other path, the psychoactive route, hewed to trade lines that swung southward into India, Persia, the Arab Middle East, and Africa. As it traveled from region to region, the pungent plant never failed to ingratiate itself among the locals. Something about the herb resonated with humankind. Once it arrived in a new place, cannabis always stayed there while also moving on perpetually leaping from one culture to another. Recent archaeological findings confirm that marijuana was used for euphoric as well as medicinal purposes long before the birth of Christ. In 2008, an international research team analyzed a cache of cannabis discovered at a remote gravesite in northwest China. The well-preserved flower tops had been buried alongside a light-haired, blue-eyed Caucasian man most likely a shaman of the Gucci culture, about 27 centuries ago. Biochemical analysis demonstrated that the herb contained tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, the main psychoactive ingredient of marijuana. To our knowledge, these investigations provide the oldest documentation of cannabis as a pharmacologically active agent, concluded Dr. Ethan Russo, lead author of the scientific study. It was clearly cultivated for psychoactive purposes rather than for clothing or food. The first reference to the medicinal use of cannabis also dates back to 2700 B.C. It was subsequently recorded in the Ching, the pharmacopoeia of Emperor Shen Nung, the father of traditional Chinese medicine. Credited with having introduced the custom of drinking tea, Shen Nung re- recommended Ma, marijuana, for more than a hundred ailments, including female weakness, gout, rheumatism, malaria, constipation, berry berry, and absent-mindedness. Uh, and I'll interject parenthetically here that female weakness here I would read and recommend reading as menstrual cramps uh, issues. There, uh, Shen Nung returning to Martin Lee's uh, prologue to Smoke Signals. Shen Nung called Ma one of the supreme elixirs of immortality. If one takes it over a long period of time, one can communicate with spirits, and one's body becomes light. The Pen Tsao-ching advises, When consumed in excess, however, it makes people see demons. Chinese physicians employed a mixture of cannabis and alcohol as a painkiller in surgical procedures. In India, cannabis consumption had long been part of Hindu worship and Ayurvedic medical practice. According to the ancient Vedic texts, the psychoactive herb was a gift to the world from the god Shiva, where the nectar of immortality landed on earth, ganja sprang forth. Longevity and good health were attributed to this plant, which figured prominently in Indian social life as a recreant, a religious sacrament, and a household remedy. Hindu holy men smoked hashish and drank bhang, B-H-A-N-G, a a cannabis-infused cordial, as an aid to devotion and meditation. Folk healers relied on ganja, the food of the gods, for relieving anxiety, lowering fevers, overcoming fatigue, enhancing appetite, improving sleep, clearing phlegm, and a plethora of other medical applications. Cannabis flower tops were said to sharpen the intellect and impel the flow of words. So grand a result, so tiny a sin, the Vedic wise men concurred. There are no less than 50 Sanskrit and Hindu names for cannabis, all praising its attributes. It's been said that language reflects the soul of a people. Eskimos have dozens of words for snowflakes, which underscores the centrality of snow in Inuit culture. So too with cannabis nomenclature. The versatile herb has generated an abundance of terms in many languages. Cannabis comes from the Greek word cannabis, which is related to the Sanskrit root kana, meaning cane, C-A-N-E. In the Old Testament, kana balsam, Aramaic for fragrant cane, is identified as an ingredient of the holy anointing oil, a topical applied by Hebrew mystics and early Christian healers. Galen, the influential Greek physician, 2nd century A.D., wrote of the medicinal properties of cannabis, but also noted that the herb was mixed with wine and served at banquets for pleasure. The first botanical illustration of the plant in Western literature appears in a Byzantine manuscript, A.D. 512, of Dioscorides, whose Materia Medica is the foundation for all modern pharmacopoeias. He recommended covering inflamed body parts with soaked cannabis roots. Swedish botanist Karl Linnaeus, who laid the foundations for modern plant taxonomy, christened it Cannabis Sativa in 1753. Hemp, the common English name for cannabis through modern times, usually refers to northern varieties of the plant grown for rope, paper, fabric, oil, or other industrial uses. It derives from the Anglo-Saxon hennep or hennep, Differences in climate account for the paucity of hemp's resinous secretion compared with its psychoactive twin closer to the equator. Of the multitude of terms associated with the cannabis plant, marijuana is the most universally recognized and widely used within the English-speaking world, even though it is not actually an English word. Marijuana is a Spanish-language colloquialism of uncertain origin. It was popularized in the United States during the 1930s by advocates of prohibition who sought to exploit prejudice against despised minority groups, especially Mexican immigrants. Intended as a derogatory slur, marijuana, spelled with a J or an H, quickly morphed into an outsized American myth. Slang words for marijuana in English are legion, Grass, reefer, tea, pot, dope, weed, bud, skunk, bunt, Mary Jane, spliff, chronic, doobie, muggles, cowboy, tobacco, hippie, lettuce. And there are nearly as many terms for getting high, stoned, buzzed, blitzed, or medicated. One could fill dictionaries with the shifting jargon related to cannabis. The profusion of idiomatic expression is, in part, an indication of the plant's unique allure, as well as the perceived need for discretion and code words among users of the most sought-after illegal commodity on the planet. According to a 2009 United Nations survey, an estimated 166 million people worldwide, that is, one in every 25 people between the ages of 15 and 65, have either tried marijuana or are active users of the herb. And as I pause briefly there for a quick sip of water, I'll remind you that I am reading from Martin Lee's Smoke Signals. A Social History of Marijuana, Medical, Recreational, and Scientific, and this is just the bulk of the prologue. I'm not going to have time to finish it, uh, because I would like to uh, spare your ears and spell my voice, and also uh, to uh, sort of give a shout-out to a record that's uh, quickly becoming one of my very favorites of the year, um, which happens to be... uh, by a 72 year old gentleman who has spent time in jail in uh, Japan for having to uh, happening to have a sizable quantity of marijuana in his suitcase back in 1979-80 uh, and of course I'm referring to Paul McCartney uh one of the great composers of our time without doubt uh whose career over such a long haul has had many ups and downs and although his uh, solo work is often associated with lightweight fare. Uh, he's, in many cases, been uh, ahead of the curve uh, throughout his career, uh, even as a Beatle. He was really the one uh, into the experimental stuff, going to Cornelius Cardew concerts and putting Karlheinz Stockhausen on the cover of Sgt. Pepper, uh, an album which, in, of course, included its own famous uh, subtle nudge nudge hints and, uh, fairly explicit references to, uh, I get high with a little help. from my friends, uh, certainly put forward this, uh, new open attitude towards alternative aspects, uh, to one's own traditional culture. And so I'm going to end with the title track from the, uh, brand new Paul McCartney record. It's called new. And I think that when you contemplate the lyric of this song, uh, I think it's one of the most beautiful things he's ever written. Uh, I see this as in part, uh, a big part, in fact, um, as very much a love song to John Lennon, uh, his childhood friend, uh, his business partner, uh, his famous feuding mate. And of course, uh, the guy that he knew better than uh, probably anyone else in the world. Uh, these two grew up together and became great composers together. And this song uh, I will dedicate to the memory of John Lennon in the celebration of the continued work of Paul McCartney. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Jim Dwyer. This program is gray matters and we'll talk more about uh, current events and political uh, such things uh, next week. Have a happy Christmas and a safe and cheerful uh, time of year. Don't
0: look at me, it's way too soon to see what's going to be. Don't look at me. All my life, I never knew what I could be, what I could do. Then we would. Guarantee we got nothing to lose Don't look at me I can't deny The truth is plain to We've got nothing to lose Don't look at me, it's way too soon to see What's gonna be, don't look at me All my life, I never knew what I could be What I could do, And we were doo 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 doo